Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Historical Materialism. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. Returning to the New Books Network today is Paul LeBlanc, here to discuss his new book on Lenin. The book deals with Lenin's life and thought, looking at as ideas in their original context, starting from his early development and thoughts on the importance of the vanguard through the revolutions of 1917, and then on to his political mistakes and attempt at course correction in the final years of his life, LeBlanc's study is an accessible and informative survey for students and activists wondering what lessons Lenin might have to offer us today. Paul LeBlanc is a professor of history at La Roche University. He is the author of numerous books on labor, class struggle, and radical political movements, including Revolutionary Collective, which we discussed last year. He has also helped edit some volumes of the ongoing collected works of Rosa Luxemburg. Paul LeBlanc, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here again. Yeah, glad to have you back. So I always like to kick things off by having guests introduce themselves at the beginning of episodes. So could you maybe tell listeners uh, who haven't heard you before who you are um, and maybe what your main areas of research tend to be, what you tend to find yourself writing about? Sure. Um, Well, I'm a retired uh, professor of history uh, at La Roche University. Um, and, uh, I've, uh, been teaching for years, uh, and I've also been active in, uh, uh, social movements and, uh, on the left for many years. Uh, and, uh, my focus has been, uh, history of labor and social movements and socialist movements. And those are the kinds of things that I tend to write about. Yeah. Picking right up on that kind of very long career, I'd like to start by noting that in it, Uh, This book, in a sense, is your second book you've written on Lenin that sought to provide an overview of his life and thought. The first one being Lenin and the Revolutionary Party, first published, uh, I believe, in 1990. Um, Although I can confirm from experience, people are still using it as a book club book, uh, studying and discussing it together. So it is still proving very useful. Um, But I'm curious to know what made you feel the need to return to Lenin 30 years later, and if writing about him in this very different context politically uh, from the 1980s uh, had you going in uh, either asking different questions of Lenin or perhaps finding things you hadn't noticed. Um, How did the background you were writing in kind of shape the research and work? Mm Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, 
However, <laughs> in a way, this is not simply my second book on Lenin. I, I wrote, uh, I edited for Pluto Press a collection of uh, Lenin's writings. Uh, uh, it was entitled Revolution, Democracy, Socialism. And in addition to that, I uh, published a book of essays uh, called Unfinished Leninism. And uh, also in my other, another of my collections, uh, uh, Revolutionary Collective, a lot of it is focused on Lenin and the Leninist tradition. And actually, with a lot of my works, I've been wrestling with and dealing with this question. So it's not like returning after 30 years, but it's sort of, in a way, a culmination of uh, a, a lot of things that I've been doing over those 30 years. Uh, so that's part of the uh, answer. Um, someone uh, who I'm working with on the uh, uh, Verso is uh, putting out a uh, uh, the complete works of Rosa Luxemburg, and we are up to volume five. And one of the other people on the editorial board, who works for a mass market uh, publisher in uh, in Britain, asked me to consider writing this book on on Lenin. Uh, and, uh, and I put together a proposal and wrote a few chapters and, uh, the publisher passed on it, uh, at which point I got in touch with Pluto press, which is a publisher that I've dealt with and they were quite interested. And so one of the reasons I returned was this, uh, young comrade asked me to, to do it, but, uh, there's other, uh, uh reasons, um, and uh, you're right. In some ways, uh, my thinking on Lenin and Leninism have remained more or less consistent with the kinds of things I was saying in the 1980s. But my thinking has continued to evolve, my research, my understanding of the history, and then the realities that we're dealing with now. Uh, so we are dealing with catastrophes that are beginning to unfold, certainly in terms of climate change, the rise of authoritarian violence in various forms, uh, and uh, a deepening, I've been saying this for the past 30 years, a deepening crisis of capitalism, but it, it really is a deepening crisis of capitalism, certainly now. Um, and uh, so I found I had certain things to summarize and certain things to say. And one of the things that struck me was that Lenin himself was dealing uh, with crises and catastrophes, certainly the catastrophe of the First World War. And related to that, the catastrophes of imperialism that were taking place in Asia, Africa, Latin America, that then as a fiery backdraft came blowing into Europe. Uh, and um, there's a similarity uh, that I found. We're, we're, we're dealing with that kind of catastrophe regarding climate change. Uh, and one can um, just rear back in horror, uh, but Lenin engaged with it and built that into his strategic revolutionary orientation. So it seemed to me that there were uh, especially some uh, uh, valuable uh, insights to be gotten uh, related to his time, relating it to our own time. Yeah, absolutely. So jumping off that and into the 
book proper and beginning with Lenin's life, you look uh, at his background, uh, particularly his family origins. Um, So his family was not aristocratically wealthy, but they were somewhat upwardly mobile. Uh, And this seemed to put Lenin in kind of a unique place where he was not uh, immune to the uh, difficulties of and economic hardships of Russia, but also he was able to receive a solid education, particularly from his mother, who I believe was a school teacher. Um, and so you're, so he's in this position of being able to read and study, but also um, his family is experiencing some of these transformations going on in Russia at the time. Could you maybe speak a bit to his background and context and how it would uh, kind of shape some of his early moral and uh, intellectual foundations? Well, uh, it's interesting. The, the way you've framed the question has stirred my thinking a little bit more. Um, in that, um, in a way, there are some similarities between ourselves and Lenin. Uh, now, there are differences, uh, uh, but um, most of us who are listening to this uh, talk, who are reading these kinds of things, who are active in various social movements, social struggles, we come, we are close to. Th- closer to the working class and the oppressed, most of us, than, uh, um, you know, than uh, the upper classes are. Um, and in point of fact, many of us are part of the working class and oppressed. The working class has evolved since Lenin's time, so that more and more professions and areas of work have become proletarianized, uh, so that the kind of uh, point that you make about Lenin uh, is similar to us. We are close, closer to the realities that are and catastrophes uh, and oppressions that are uh, unfolding. And at the same time, more and more of us have education, have access to knowledge, uh, and are you know thinking about uh, critically about the world around us in a way that he was also. Now there are differences. Uh, so, for example, uh, Lenin's grandparents or great grandparents were peasant serfs in backward Russia. Uh, and uh, serfdom uh, pe- peasants, they, they were very, very oppressed, but some were able to struggle and fight hard to improve their situation. And in Lenin's family, his father's parents were able to uh, finally get their freedom, save up enough money to ensure his father's education. Uh, and his father was able to rise uh, uh, you know, economically and in terms of occupation, become a, a director of education in his area. And at the same time, he was engaged with, uh, uh, he, he wanted not simply to rise above his background, but he wanted to help the children of workers and peasants and oppressed people get a good education and be able to rise themselves. Um, Lenin's father uh, tried to harmonize that aspiration, uh, that commitment and goal, tried to harmonize it with loyalty to the czar, uh, and uh, in particular to the liberal czar who had freed the serfs uh, uh, and uh, then uh, was uh, killed in an assassination because the czar system continued to be oppressive. Uh, And then the next czar, 
decided to uh, tighten the screws, uh, give up on a lot of the liberal reforms, and the the oppression became deeper and more severe, and that had a radicalizing impact on Lenin. Uh, so all of these different uh, aspects of his uh, childhood context uh, uh, helped to shape him. There's more that can be said, but uh, that's at least the beginning of uh, an answer. Yeah. Another thing I'd like to ask you about, you spend some time discussing Lenin's early love of reading, particularly books on philosophy, history, and especially literature, Tolstoy being a particular favorite in his household. So while Lenin would not read these figures uncritically, this was a period when many writers in Russia were wrestling with some profound questions of Russian identity, history, and its possibilities for the future. So this would also seem to be an important part of Lenin's early moral formation and development. Could you maybe speak to some of these influences a bit and uh, Lenin's interest in these figures and what they would maybe uh, give him? Sure. Um, you know, Tarek Ali wrote a book on Lenin that, that was uh, very much worth reading. It came out a few years ago. And in it, uh, I found a quote. Uh, he said, it was impossible for the Ulyanov family. That was Lenin's original last name, Ulyanov. Uh, it was impossible for the Ulyanov family to escape high culture. They were immersed in reading uh, yeah, Chekhov and Tolstoy and Turgenev and Pushkin and Gogol, and uh, especially for Lenin, an important figure was Chernyshevsky, who was uh, a revolutionary. Um, and music and uh, other aspects of culture that helped to develop their uh, Lenin's uh, uh, critical thinking and sensibilities. And all of these artists and intellectuals uh, who were uh, prominent in Russian culture were reacting to and reacting against the oppressiveness of czarist society, uh, the development of capitalism, which brought in new uh, forms of oppression, so that there was uh, uh, in in this high culture there was a very powerful subculture of critical thought and uh, critical sensibilities. Um, so this was part of uh, the the context within which Lenin and his uh, brothers and sisters were evolving, and uh, all of them all of them became revolutionaries uh, because of that interplay of critical thinking and oppressive uh, social and, and economic realities and political realities. Yeah. Turning to Lenin's own thought, one of the first ideas you point to is Lenin's insistence from very early in his political career on the importance of a vanguard party. Given that it's both a central aspect of his own thinking and also an idea that has proven very contentious over the years among those who see it as part of a more conspiratorial, elitist, or kind of proto-authoritarian tendency, it might be worth asking what Lenin meant when he talked about this vanguard party and what its role within the larger class struggle might be. Sure, I'll uh, I'll address that, uh, and I, in a way, I, I would imagine we'll be talking about that from different angles in uh, various parts of uh, our discussion, our conversation here. Um, one of the things about Lenin that uh, was a characteristic from early on was he was not satisfied simply in talking about 
you know, the social problems and radical change and revolution and just talking and showing how smart he was and how clever and that's it. He had no patience for that. Uh, the purpose of uh, uh, talking and, and writing and uh, engaging with this stuff was to bring about change, to bring about fundamental revolutionary change that would end the oppressions that he uh, uh, saw and felt. Um, you can't bring about that change just by talking, just by reading books. There has to be uh, 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 large numbers of people who are ready to challenge the structures of power and bring about changes, bring about the changes. Um, I may have ideas or you may have ideas uh, about what changes might make sense. But you and I don't have the power to bring about those changes. Uh, Lenin recognized that some people were more critical minded than others, getting more experience in struggling for social justice and economic justice. Uh, and so not everyone was alike. And there are some people not thinking about that stuff at all or not quite aware of it. Um, if you and I and others who believe in the need for change work together, we can have more of an impact in the society around us, as opposed to just stating our opinions and urging people to do whatever we think makes sense. So that grouping of people working together uh, is uh, an avant-garde, a, a, a vanguard, or can be. And it's not just intellectuals. He saw uh, the need for the development of and, and the reality of the development of this kind of thing in the working class. The working class for him wasn't an undifferentiated whole. There were uh, uh, conscious workers who were wrestling with these kinds of ideas, and then many workers who were not, you know, who were drinking vodka and trying to uh, just blot out the oppressions that they were experiencing. Uh, among the conscious workers, there were some who were trying to do things and who were uh, drawing on the experience of the people who came before them. And uh, so they were a revolutionary vanguard layer within the working class. Uh, and there were uh, intellectuals like Lenin who were close to them, drawn to them and so forth. And if such people worked together, they might be able to bring about change that would not be possible otherwise. I think this makes sense. Uh, uh, in any context, this makes sense. Uh, and that's what he was talking about. And it wasn't just Lenin who was talking about it. He didn't come up with it by himself. Uh, you can find it in Marx and Engels. You can find it in various Russian revolutionaries of the time, including some who didn't agree with Lenin. Um, uh, so he took this, he took revolution seriously. Uh, he took organization to help bring about revolution, to understand the problems, and then to understand and figure out what to do about the problems. He took that seriously. And this has become uh, uh, the basis for a notion of vanguard party. I want to add something. Uh, it's so easy to get this kind of thing wrong. And there are people who've come after Lenin who turn this notion of a vanguard party into uh, uh, some kind of abstract monstrosity, some of them to criticize it, and some of them 
in order to carry it out. Uh, but uh, so that the, the term Vanguard Party has taken on an additional baggage uh, that it didn't have for Lenin. Uh, and my thinking is what Lenin was saying about it and Len, Lenin and other comrades, that makes sense. That's still relevant today. Yeah. Continuing with this uh, discussion, you quote Lenin's famous adage that without revolutionary theory, think there can be no revolutionary party. So there is one obvious interpretation of this, that the party and its practice need to be grounded in a sophisticated theoretical understanding. And that's certainly... Uh, part of this. But uh, you also offer up a political spin on this, arguing that it's also a critique of various short-sighted forms of political opportunism. Could you speak to this political angle of Lenin's principle here? Yeah. Uh, and Lenin and he, Lenin wasn't the only one. There were others in the revolutionary movement at that time who made reference uh, to the, uh, used the word opportunism. Uh, and uh, for many of us, uh, I mean, initially I thought, oh, an opportunist, that's somebody who's just in it for themselves and they want to make money or something. But that's not the meaning uh, of uh, what Lenin was talking about. I mean, there can be that kind of thing. But Lenin was talking about something else, taking advantage of what you see as an opportunity to advance, you know, a struggle. Um without connecting it to a larger and deeper understanding and analysis of what are the problems, what are the kinds of things that need to be done to overcome the problems, uh, what has been the experience of trying to get from here, uh, today's realities, to there, the desired goal. The kinds of things that I'm talking about now are often referred to as theory, revolutionary theory. Um, and to take advantage of what seems like an opportunity. Oh, I've been asked to become part of the czar's government. That's great. You know, and then I'll do nice things in there. Uh, uh, that's, uh, uh, that would be taking advantage of an opportunity without connecting it with an understanding of what's happening in society and how do we get from the current reality to the desired goal, the revolutionary theory that Lenin was talking about. And he felt that uh, that kind of opportunism was a trap and it could draw the movement and the struggle into uh, dead ends and, and uh, generally did. So he opposed that kind of opportunism. He was in favor of taking advantage of opportunities and openings, uh, but it had to be connected with an understanding of what are the problems what will it take to overcome the problems? What will it take to move things forward? Uh, the, the opportunities and taking advantage of, uh, advantage of the opportunities always had to be connected with that kind of thinking for Lenin and for other revolutionaries. Yeah, another element of Lenin's understanding of the vanguard is its ability to engage in political struggles beyond just narrow economic ones. So while class is obviously essential to any Marxist understanding of society, and class struggle is the overarching task, Lenin also insists uh, that any vanguard party worth its salt needs to engage in struggle beyond just fights for wages and workplace disputes. Could you explain what other battles he has in mind and why these uh, extra economic realms are not just an optional, but essential part of the Vanguard Party's responsibility? Sure. Um, 
within uh, the Russian revolutionary movement and the early Marxist movement in, in Russia, uh, a trend developed among uh, some of the activists uh, that uh, went sort of like this. Uh, Marx emphasizes economics, capitalism and the, the exploitation of capitalism, the exploitation of the working class. Um, Marx says that the working class must organize to uh, advance its interests, you know, better uh, working conditions, better pay, uh, shorter hours, various other reforms like that, and that that would be a, a natural development. And so Marxists should focus on that. Um, and Lenin uh, called that uh, economism. Uh, and he felt, you know, it's important to look at the economy and it's crucial to look at the economy and at the working class. But to understand capitalist society and to understand the czarist capitalist hybrid that existed in, in Russia in his time, you had to go beyond that. And in point of fact, if you're a revolutionary, you oppose all forms of oppression. You're in favor of freedom for all people. Uh, a free society, a society of the free and the equal was a term often used among revolutionaries, a society of the free and the equal. And in order to uh, uh, do that, you had to be more than simply a trade unionist. And a revolutionary should not just be a, tra a trade union secretary focused on wages, hours, working conditions, and building unions. That's important. But also important and crucial was a merging of working class with the conception of socialism. And that involved a revolutionary becoming a tribune of the people opposing all forms of oppression against women, uh, uh, regardless of class, uh, against uh, oppressed national and racial minorities, against students who were being oppressed, against soldiers who were being oppressed, against religious minorities who were being oppressed, taking a stand against all forms of oppression and linking them together and showing that they're part of a whole system that is oppressive. And in order to develop that understanding, and uh, uh, that's class consciousness, uh, a worker becomes class conscious when he or she uh, understands those kinds of connections and the place of oneself in the working class and the working class in this complex society that was full of all forms, all kinds of forms of exploitation and oppression. So that was Lenin's approach. Uh, against this more narrow conception of uh, the people who at that time were called economists. Yeah, moving along uh, into the wake of the events of 1905, uh, Lenin and many others would be forced to take in some difficult lessons. One in particular you hone in on is that of the United Front and the importance of properly orienting oneself amidst a variety of different groups with goals and values that sometimes overlapped and sometimes did not. What were some of Lenin's takeaways at this time on how to orient oneself in this kind of dizzying, dizzying array of groups on display at the time? Yeah, and uh, it was a dizzying array of groups. You had some people who were basically uh, uh, liberals 
who wanted more freedom and some kind of constitutional republic, not the czarist system. Uh, you had uh, people focused on the peasantry, uh, uh, and uh, they may have been socialists uh, influenced by Marxism, but their focus was on the majority class, the peasantry, and they believed that uh, terrorism, k- killing oppressive figures in the czarist system, was part of a strategy of generating mass revolt. Uh, And then you had Marxists uh, who argued that, no, you had to organize a working class uh, uh, around various issues, uh, and uh, including trade union and economic struggles, but then the whole range of struggles and insights that I was talking about before, building a mass movement that would have the power to overturn the czarist system. Now, among those Marxists, there were some who said, well, you need an alliance of the working class with liberal capitalists. You had others like the Bolsheviks, Lenin uh, was the leader of the Bolshevik faction of the of the Russian Marxists. He said, no, there needs to be a worker-peasant alliance to bring about that democratic revolution. So you had all that and more. Then you had Father Gapon, who was a priest, <laughs> who was a priest working cooperatively with the czarist system and the czarist uh, secret police, uh, but also uh, in his own contradictory way uh, relating to the, uh, the problems of the working class. And he led a demonstration uh, to the Winter Palace, the czar's palace, with a petition asking the czar to fix the various problems, and they were shot down. So then Gapon was enraged, and others around him were enraged and radicalized, at least for a time. And Gapon uh, called for a united struggle of all these different uh, groupings and currents against the czarist system. And Lenin responded to that in a very positive way, but with a a warning at the same time. There had been various attempts, oh, let's forget our differences and just join together. You know, we just need to join together. That's all. We shouldn't be fighting over these different perspectives. Let's just join together. And that would create what Lenin called a revolutionary chaos, a mush. You know, uh, if, if it's going to take X, Y, and Z to overturn czarism, and somebody else is saying, no, it's going to take this, uh, you know, this other formula and others are going to say, no, don't do that, do this. You're not going to be able to have a durable unity. And that's got to be okay. You have to be able to agree to disagree and test things out. But on certain specifics, you can join together. Uh, join together against uh, the uh, repression of the Tsarist regime, join together for certain more limited reforms. This came to be known as a united front. So Lenin's group, for example, was prepared to join together in a united front with the various other currents uh, that I've mentioned uh, on specific goals uh, at, while at the same time holding on to their general perspective and putting forward their general perspective to the others and winning others to uh, a pathway, a strategic and tactical pathway that they felt made sense. Uh, that's a united front, and that's key uh, uh, for our own times as well, it seems to me. That's one of the valuable lessons that uh, Lenin and some of his comrades were able to pass on to us. 
Yeah, moving along and turning to the outbreak of the First World War, you look at the competing accounts of how war broke out and what it meant. So among many Marxists, Lenin included, it was uh, seen as part of a larger attempt to understand what they saw as the new and at the time latest stage in capitalist development, the imperialist stage. Could you unpack the basic idea here and how it became a sort of lens for many Marxists to understand the First World War? Sure. Um, and actually, there were uh, sharp differences among Marxists uh, in regard to the First World War and in regard to understanding imperialism. Uh, so there were some uh, people in the socialist movement worldwide who believed that the more advanced capitalist countries um, could benefit from colonies, you know, from uh, uh, conquering and taking over different parts of the world and that that was fine and legitimate and they could help modernize those parts of the world and even the native peoples of those parts of the world eventually would be advanced and the, the working class in their particular countries would be advanced. And this was just modernization. It was okay, according to some. Uh, according to others, uh, it was it was horrible. <laughs> it was exactly the kind of thing that they were fighting against uh, this uh, system that uh, ran roughshod over the lives and cultures of laboring peoples around the world for the benefit of a small uh, minority of, uh, of uh, capitalists who wanted to make profits from securing markets and raw materials and investment opportunities in different parts of the world. Uh, but then there were also differences among Marxists who believed this. So there were some, for example, who were inclined to see those policies, those imperialist policies as bad, but, and they should be opposed, but that they could easily be opposed. There could be, capitalism could fall diff follow different policies. Then there were other uh, Marxists, and Lenin was one of them. Rosa Luxemburg was another one of them, who said no, this imperialism, this destructive, horrific, exploitative imperialism, which generates wars and conflict and uh, uh, horrors and uh, catastrophes, uh, this is an, an essential part of, an integral part of capitalism and the dynamics of capitalism. And so you must be anti-imperialist, uh, but recognize uh, how deep that has to go. You can't just get a, a liberal politician or a nicer politician in place who won't follow the imperialist policies. One way or another, any politician who's trying to maintain the capitalist system is also maintaining the imperialist system, according to them. Now, in addition to the differences that I've talked about, Lenin and Luxembourg had different understandings of imperialism and wrote you know, uh, important studies that laid it out differently. So for Luxembourg, imperialism was an, an essential part of capitalism from the very beginning. 
You know, she pointed to colonialism and uh, uh, various other things in her magnificent book, Accumulation of Capital. She goes through with almost an anthropological sensibility, the impact of capitalism on the world's peoples in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, in North America, and so forth, and argued that this is something that existed from the very beginning, had to exist from the very beginning. Lenin didn't deny all of that, except he had a different conception, and it's one that matches the description you gave us a a few minutes ago, that this is a new stage. Capitalism has uh, reached a new stage, Uh, and imperialism, uh, this modern form of imperialism, is part of that. Uh, and uh, and uh, there's an intensification of the it represents reflects an intensification of the crisis and the problems and and the exploitive uh, exploitiveness of capitalism. So he saw it in that way, uh, and uh, he and Luxembourg were able to agree on many things in the struggle their common struggle against imperialism. But there were these different conceptions, and and Lenin's conception. It seems to me is is uh, valuable, and uh, capitalism has gone through various evolutions. It's not just the same as it was in Lenin's time, but his way of looking at imperialism, I think, still resonates, still has value uh, for us. And uh, so, people who were inclined to have the understanding of imperialism shared by Luxembourg and Lenin uh, then uh, were armed to perceive a world war was approaching, you know, conflict and competition between different capitalist powers over who's going to control what in the world, markets and raw materials and investment opportunities. And this was generating militarism and it was generating a war atmosphere and there was going to be this catastrophe of the first world war. And they prepared for it, Lenin and others prepared, were preparing for it and uh, weaving that into their strategic orientation. Um, so that's a partial answer to your good question. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So as the war dragged on, there were many challenges presented to Lenin and his comrades, but there were also opportunities, increasing hours in factories, decreasing standards of living, and a never-ending list of mostly young men losing their lives at the front all created a dark and difficult atmosphere for those living through it. And Russia perhaps suffered some of the worst of it. 
However, this situation also presented a sort of opening to revolutionaries like Lenin. Could you speak to the atmosphere that this war created and the way it presented a sort of opportunity for people like Lenin? Sure. Um, Even though people like Lenin and Luxembourg were anticipating that this was coming and it was going to, it was coming fast. Um, and they pointed it out. They argued uh, against uh, the imperialist policies, militarism within the socialist international that they were part of, uh, that uh, was a federation of different socialist parties. Uh, they, along with a, a guy named Julius Martov, who was a different kind of Marxist in Russia, uh, put together an anti-war uh, uh, proclamation that was adopted by the Socialist International years before the war happened, but it pointed out that this was going to happen and that they got the agreement of all of the socialists uh, at that World Congress of the Socialist International. Our job will be to fight against this war. If this war erupts, it will show uh, how bad capitalism is, and it will have a, a radicalizing impact on large numbers of people. So they were anticipating it, and yet the horrors of the war were uh, the actualities of the war uh, were devastating nonetheless to them. And one of the things that was devastating to both of them was most of the socialist parties of Europe caved in to the pressure of the imperialist policies and imperialist governments. And instead of holding true to the uh, agreement that this, uh, if, if a world war uh, took place, this was a, uh, a signal that there needed to be socialist revolution. They caved in and they went along with the, uh, their, particular, their uh, various uh, uh, imperialist governments and supported the war effort. The thing that Lenin did and Luxembourg and some others was they remained true to that understanding that they'd been pointing to for some years. Um, Lenin used a, uh, a particular uh, formulation that seemed controversial, but when you look at it, it makes a certain amount of sense. Turn the imperialist war into a civil war. Well, a civil war can be very very raw and rough and horrific. I mean, the American Civil War is a perfect example of that. But what Lenin meant was uh, a, a war between the working class and the capitalists who were bringing on this catastrophic world war. That is an intensification of the class struggle uh, and creating revolutions in Russia and other countries. And Lenin's conception was this horrific war was having initially was supported, you know, with a lot of fanfare by many people who got sucked into supporting the war. Oh, this is glorious. We're patriotic. You know, our sons, our lovers, our boyfriends, our uh, uh, fathers, uh, our uncles, they're going into the army. Isn't this glorious? They're fighting for freedom, whatever that was supposed to mean. And, uh, it was horrific, and many who went marching off died, and those who didn't die went through traumatic, 
experiences of the First World War, and civilian populations were devastated by the war. The economies were uh, the economies of Europe were devastated by the war, and it didn't turn out to be this glorious thing that so many people had thought it was going to be. Um, that their governments and that liberals and conservatives and reactionaries and uh, various that were promising it was going to be, it turned into something uh, quite different. And that had a powerful, deep, radicalizing impact on the peoples of Europe and on the laboring majorities in Europe. Um, Lenin saw that coming. And Lenin argued then, this is an opportunity for us to uh, build a revolutionary movement in a way that will actually carry out revolutions in the wake of this catastrophe. Uh, so that was an important uh, uh, orientation that Lenin brought into the revolutionary socialist movement. And it's one that's uh, still useful for us as we're assessing our, our own catastrophes, um, including the catastrophe of climate change, which many uh, politicians and uh, uh, economic leaders denied was happening. And then some of them said, well, it's happening, but you know we've got these partial solutions and it's all going to be okay. And it's not okay. And it's not going to be okay. There's a kind of catastrophe that is uh, starting to unfold now that may have a radicalizing impact on large numbers of people. So my feeling is we've got to integrate this into a revolutionary strategic and tactical orientation in the years uh, that uh, are ahead of us. Yeah, a lot to work with. So um, one of the really important historical lessons you point to uh, is that the revolution in 1917 is actually two revolutions. So one in February and the other in October. And while these two revolutions were connected, there were some fundamental political differences between them. And perhaps uh, one, of, one of Lenin's most important historical roles was building the bridge between the February and October revolutions. Could you speak to the political differences between the, these two moments and the role Lenin had to play to build a bridge from February to October? Sure. Um... And this is, uh, I mean, when we're dealing with things like this, very complex political realities, uh, it takes time to absorb all of it. And so that my understanding of it now uh, has uh, deepened, uh, it seems to me. Uh, so let me explain uh, why I say that. There, there's a, an, um, there was a journalist a Russian immigrant. And by the way, uh, the, the best book to read on the Russian Revolution, in my opinion, the, the October Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, that second revolution, is one written by a U.S. journalist named John Reed called Ten Days That Shook the World. It, it's, wonder, it's a wonderful book. Um, but there was another guy who uh, was not a revolutionary named Isaac Don Levine. Uh, and he knew Russian. Uh, he was from Russia, uh, and uh, he came out with a book, I think it's called The Russian Revolution, and it came out in June of 1917, between the one revolution and the other revolution. And this is what he described. 
And and he wasn't a supporter of Lenin. He wasn't a supporter of the Bolsheviks in the way that John Reed was. He was uh, more moderate. Um, and uh, he noted that it was the working class, a radicalized working class that organized in, in its upsurge in, in February or March of 1917, uh, organized councils in the workplaces, in the communities throughout uh, Petrograd, where the major upsurge took place, uh, and then other parts of the country kind of followed suit. And what the workers wanted, according to him, was uh, and the the people involved in this upsurge, uh, they had been radicalized. They were familiar. Many of them were familiar with socialist ideas from the different factions of the uh, socialist movement in Russia, and they were uh, on board with that. The, this notion that the working class and socialism must come together was a process that had already taken place among the Petrograd working class. So what they wanted was an end to World War I, which was horrific. They wanted, uh, uh, many of them had come from the land and many of the soldiers, uh, most of the soldiers in the Russian army were from peasant backgrounds. And there was a need for land reform, land to the peasants, take it away from the rich landowners and distribute it among the peasants. So peace and land, and then there wasn't enough food. <laughs> there was a food crisis, so bread. Um, and these were interlinked and they were related in the minds of workers to the need to move forward to democracy, political democracy, but not just political democracy, but social and economic democracy, socialism. That was the sentiment of those who were actually in the streets fighting against the police, winning over the workers and bringing about the overthrow of the tyrannical monarchy, the czarist regime in that first revolution. There was a lack of clarity. That is, there was a feeling, okay, this is what we want. And then we've got some politicians, uh, you know, our own moderate socialist politicians working with liberals and conservatives and so forth. And they're forming a provisional government to help bring this about. And so we're building these workers' councils, the, the Russian word was Soviets, and we'll work with the provisional government. But the provisional government was dominated by big landowners, businessmen, lawyers working for the landowners and businessmen, moderate you know, uh, socialists who wanted to work with uh, the capitalists. They, they didn't think that a socialist revolution uh, made sense or was desirable at this time. They wanted to simply, you know, overthrow the czar, set up a democratic republic, a few social reforms, land to the peasants. Well, we've got to hold off on that. We've got to do it in the right way that's not going to antagonize and alienate some of the landowners. And uh, we've got to stay involved. Yes, we want peace, but peace through victory. We want a peace with honor. Uh, and so um, there was a growing gap between the aspirations of the working class uh, reflected somewhat in the councils in the Soviets and the provisional government. There were many socialists who were trying to fix that somehow or trying to negotiate that. Lenin came back to Russia and he recognized there's no fixing. There's a dual power and it's not compatible 
the, the the provisional government and the Soviets are not compatible. And we're with the Soviets. We want all power to the Soviets. Peace, bread, land, all power to the Soviets, down with the provisional government. And he won over a majority of the Bolsheviks, uh, his own organization, uh, and ultimately a majority of the working class, including you know, people who were involved in other currents, uh, some anarchists and some left-wing Mensheviks, and there was a socialist revolutionary party, the Peasant Party, that split in two, and the left wing of it joined with the Bolsheviks to bring about that second revolution that was consistent with the aspirations of those who had made the first revolution. Um, so that's kind of how it happened. Um, and now I'll stop talking. You may have another question. Yeah. So um, picking up right after the revolution, one might assume the Bolsheviks saw their job as essentially finished, but instead for them, and in their view, it was intended to be a first step onto a much larger stage, uh, the international stage. So what did Lenin see as the Bolsheviks' role in this new international context? What did it mean for them that, um, and what did it mean for them that the rest of the world didn't immediately follow suit? Um, what did they see as their task and this new challenge? Um, Lenin and his comrades had always been uh, seen themselves as internationalists. That is, they saw capitalism as a global system that had to be replaced by socialism as a global system. As Marx and Engels had uh, said in the Communist Manifesto, workers of all countries should unite and bring about a socialist world, a transition to a socialist world. Uh, from the very beginning, I've made reference to the Socialist International, this Federation of Socialist Parties, uh, and Lenin was part of that and saw that as very important. Lenin and Luxembourg, Luxembourg was operating uh, predominantly in Germany, and there was a big socialist movement in Germany, very powerful socialist movement in Germany, and actually the biggest uh, uh, parties throughout Europe, for the most part, the biggest parties were socialist parties. Um, and so Lenin assumed and believed that, um, you know, the, there would be a natural development uh, brought about by these parties in throughout Europe and throughout the world towards creating a socialist world and that they would learn from each other and work with each other and so on. Um, world War One was a global conflict that was bringing about a global radicalization. Uh, and yet, as we noted before, there was a split in the Socialist International with uh, a majority of the parties in the Socialist International following leaders who were going along with the war effort. Um, what this meant for Lenin, for Luxembourg, for other revolutionaries was there was a need for a new international. You know, and uh, Lenin uh, uh, had called himself a socialist or a social democrat, as all socialists uh, tended to call themselves. And uh, in order to distinguish his orientation and the, with the agreement of his Bolshevik comrades, uh, they, they shifted to the word communist. 
So they wanted to build a communist international that would be truly revolutionary. Now, this was essential for the victory, the ultimate victory of the Russian Revolution, because what they wanted was socialism. Well, you can't have socialism in a single economically backward country. Uh, socialism means economic democracy and well-being of all, uh, well-being of all. It's, uh, capitalism creates the potential for that. And you didn't have a fully developed capitalism in, in Russia. But if the Russian revolution was linked with other revolutions in more industrially advanced countries, uh, in Germany, in France, in Britain, and elsewhere, uh, then they, they would have a shot at together creating a socialist world economy to replace the capitalist world economy. So Lenin and his comrades, uh, one, of the, one of the things that was, uh, they saw as essential was building that communist international of revolutionary parties around the world that would work together to bring about this socialist world, bring about revolutions in more and more and more countries. Uh, Lenin uh, and other uh, of his comrades believed that this would happen soon, that the Russian revolution was just the beginning of a new wave of revolutions, uh, and that they were, Lenin used the term, we are a besieged fortress until the armies of the working class, the, the, uh, the uh, armies, not the military armies, but the, the masses of working class people in various countries bring about revolutions in their countries. Until that happens, we are a besieged fortress and we won't be able to carry out the socialism that we were reaching for as we made the revolution. It's dependent on the spread of revolution uh, throughout the world. And so they, they, he and others were committed to helping to bring that about. Yeah, picking uh, up this thread. So given that the rest of the world didn't pursue revolution, it left the Bolsheviks isolated politically and Russia isolated economically, as you said, this besieged fortress. So between economic isolation, lack of development, counter-revolutionary forces, and many layers of Russian society that were not always fully on board with the revolutionary project, the Bolsheviks were in something of a corner. And it's at this late point in the book that even while you sympathize with the difficult situation Lenin was in, uh, he and his comrades, you argue, did make some painful political errors. Could you speak to this late period of Lenin's political life? Sure. Um, you know, there were almost revolutions in a number of countries. Uh, and Lenin never gave up on that. Uh, he concluded at a certain point, this is going to take longer. <laughs> uh, and we've got to hold out until, uh, and uh, maybe we'll be defeated, uh, you know, but we'll provide an important example and experience and so forth. But we've got to try to hang on as best we can. We've got to do whatever is necessary to hang on while encouraging revolutionaries in Germany and France and Italy and, uh, and, and beyond uh, to uh, make revolutions. Um, but they were between a rock and a hard place. So initially, the Soviets were multi-party democracy. They were, they were a multi-party democracy. 
the Bolsheviks or the now the communists were just one of a number of parties initially. Um, but uh, uh, one of the problems was uh, some of the people in the uh, other parties were fighting against the new uh, uh, Soviet regime, the new revolutionary regime. They were joining uh, counter-revolutionaries and people fighting for a return of the czar, people fighting for capitalism, uh, and, and so on. Uh, there were some who were doing that. There were others who weren't doing that, but who were arguing against the Bolshevik revolution. And in a time of war and crisis, that can create a problem. And then if you're calling strikes uh, in a period of revolution and you're criticizing the revolutionary government with, you know, accurate criticisms, uh, this can create instability and it cre can create the overturn of that revolutionary government. And then the main forces that are going to take control are like, uh, you know, extreme right-wing authoritarian forces. And this happened in certain parts of Russia. And they would round up the revolutionaries and kill them. They would oppress the workers and the peasants. It was a bad, it would be very bad if if the reactionaries, if the counter-revolutionaries won. And therefore, according to Lenin uh, and some of his comrades, you can't allow democracy you can't allow free debate. Uh, you have to ban the other parties. The only party that you can really count on is the Communist Party. And it, it, this is just temporary, comrades. It's temporary until there are revolutions elsewhere and we defeat the counter-revolutionaries, said Lenin and some of his comrades. Uh, but the creation of a Communist Party dictatorship, as it turned out, was not temporary. One of the other, and is, so it seems to me there's a mistake involved in that. There was a mistake in some of the brutality. It, it must, it's not like it was a decision. If you unleash uh, the kind of civil war that uh, existed in Russia, the counter-revolutionaries were extremely uh, uh, effective, horrific human rights abusers. Uh, and if you have uh, masses of people fighting against that, there are some who will become human rights abusers uh, in reaction to that. And you had that kind of horrific uh, dynamic that was developing. Um, with many in the Bolshevik party and sometimes Lenin himself uh, uh, justifying the abuse of human rights. I think that was a mistake during that red, the period of the Red Terror uh, as it was called, um, and it came back to haunt them. Uh, so those were some of the mistakes. Uh, I believe also that the majority of people in Russia were peasants. They were not part of the Bolshevik party. They weren't part of the working class movement. And Lenin, I think, got uh, had an understanding of the importance of the peasantry, but didn't have a full understanding, in my opinion, of the dynamics of the peasant community. So big mistakes were made in terms of uh, Bolshevik policy and communist policy along those lines, and that created problems. Lenin had been opposed to the government taking over the economy. 
initially. He wanted a mixed economy because he argued we and the working class as a whole don't quite know how to run the economy. So we should have a mixed economy. Capitalists should be kept in place. We'll give them some profits, but not all. Eventually, we'll take everything over. Well, in the midst of the Civil War, that went uh, that uh, completely unraveled. The capitalists weren't going to cooperate with their own extinction, and they they uh, uh, there was a need to take control of the economy. But Lenin's uh, initial point was correct. They, they didn't know how to run the economy, so that there were all kinds of bureaucratic screw-ups. Uh, and if the government is running the economy, that necessitates a bigger governmental apparatus, you know, and without the checks and balances of political democracy, uh, that resulted in the growth of an authoritarian, inefficient bureaucratic system. So that in his last days, Lenin, realizing that that had taken place, he saw that as one of the biggest problems facing the Soviet regime. Um, and he called for all kinds of changes. Uh, he called for a new economic policy uh, to allow the peasants more breathing space, uh, to allow small-scale capitalism to get the economy going again. But this bureaucracy continued to grow, and uh, was a uh, it was made up of people who said they were for and thought they were for the revolution, but often they were blocking the kinds of things that people had been reaching for in 1917 and Lenin had been arguing for. So that Lenin was left with this terrible problem that he was wrestling with uh, in his final days. Um, Long-winded answer to a a, a good question, but the the complexity of it would would necessitate even more words than I've used so far. But I try to give a sense of this in the book. And also... Uh, Lenin came up with some practical uh, uh, proposals to try to deal with some of this, and that's also part of of the book, Uh, proposals that were consistent with uh, his initial commitments and uh, goals. Yeah, picking that right up. So towards the very end of Lenin's life, amid various health crises, including several strokes, um, that made it clear that his personal end was near, he attempted to offer a course correction in the form of a final testament, uh, one full of self-criticism, some regrets, and a restatement of some of his fundamental political convictions that he hoped his successors could carry out and continue carrying on the revolutionary work. Could you speak to this last testament on Lenin's part and what he kind of tried to end, the note he tried to end his life on? Yeah. Um, The last testament, Lenin's uh, final testament, uh, is often understood as a single document, a a, a lengthy letter that he sent to the, uh, that he composed to be given to the uh, Congress of the Communist Party. He wasn't sure that he'd be dead by then, but he might be dead by then. And in fact, he was dead. And in that uh, letter, he evaluated the various leaders, uh, aside from himself, in the Communist Party, including Stalin and Trotsky and Bukharin and various other ones, um, and argued, and he pointed out uh, problems of each of them. And uh, it was sort of an argument, 
uh, well, we, you know, this or that or the other comrade, they're not the ones who should be in charge. There needs to be a collective leadership to balance this out. And then at a certain point, he concluded Stalin was really going in an incredibly destructive direction and needed to be removed from his position. So that was the last testament that many people refer to. But in point of fact, there were a number of things that were part of his testament. His evaluation of the Bolshevik revolution. He wrote a couple of reviews. Well, one was a review of a Menshevik. Uh, Shukhanov uh, uh, wrote a, a uh, an account of the revolutionary period, actually an account that was published by the Bolshevik government and circulated and discussed, and he reviewed that. And then, of course, uh, John Reed's uh, 10 Days That Shook the World that showed a super democratic uh, uh, goal and... Uh, and uh, 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 effort to create that goal that was the Bolshevik revolution. So he said, yeah, this is, uh, you know, here's the what, what I think is wrong with the, the Menshevik account. And then John Reed's account is really good. And here are my some thoughts of mine on why the revolution made sense. So that's part of his testament. Another part of his testament is uh, his ongoing, uh, well, a, a call for a cultural revolution. And not the kind of cultural revolution that took place in China uh, under Mao Zedong, where they attacked intellectuals and specialists and so forth, but a cultural revolution that would involve the education and raising the, the cultural level of the working class and the peasantry of Russia to enable Russian workers and peasants, more and more and more of them, to understand the world, to understand their society, and to be able to run it. So there was a need for that kind of cultural revolution. Uh, he called for uh, a, a, a workers and peasants uh, uh, structure that would uh, try to evaluate and control and fight against bureaucracy in the Communist Party and in the Soviet governments. Uh, now, the person who was charged with implementing this, it turned out, was Joseph Stalin. And this is one reason why Lenin became more critical of Stalin, only one of the reasons, uh, because uh, Stalin did it in a bureaucratic way. And so Lenin was critical then of how that the bureaucracy had sort of screwed that up. But that was uh, part of his testament too, his effort to do that, and then his critique of how it was done badly. Um, and then Lenin, after the revolution, uh, got together with an anarchist named, uh, a great anarchist, uh, Kropotkin. And Lenin and Kropotkin had many differences, but Kropotkin was drawn to Lenin's idea that eventually the state should wither away uh, and uh, be replaced by the self-government of the working people. Uh, and Kropotkin liked that, but was very critical of the Bolsheviks in other ways. And Lenin uh, respected Kropotkin and uh, wanted to talk with him. And Kropotkin urged him uh, to uh, develop cooperatives. And Lenin was critical of what, what uh, Kropotkin was saying, but apparently he'd thought about it. So another aspect of his testament was arguing for the creation of cooperatives as a transition from the old way of doing things to the newer way of doing things, uh, various aspects of cooperative uh, organization in the economy. 
Uh, so these were some of the things that Lenin did. There were a couple of others that were interesting. One is he argued vociferously for self-determination of oppressed nationalities within the Russian Empire. The Russian Empire was called by revolutionaries a prison house of nations. Uh, some people uh, uh, said, you know, Russia didn't have an empire. Russia was an empire. It was created by the conquest, conquering the peoples of Georgia and the Ukraine and other areas, and then bringing them into this entity ruled by an authoritarian government, the Tsar. Uh, and Lenin was in favor of nurturing self-determination of all of the various peoples culturally, uh, you know, allowing them to speak their own languages, developing their own culture, and if they wanted to, to separate uh, and become their own country. Um, so, uh, and then another interesting thing that he did was he he gathered together a number of intellectuals and specialists, some who had been members of other parties, uh, constitutional Democrats and uh, social revolutionaries and uh, Mensheviks and, and others, but experts who wanted to uh, uh, help Russia develop economically. Uh, and, uh, uh, and he gave them authority and he uh, uh, stopped efforts to denigrate them and to repress them. He was looking for various ways to uh, um, uh, overcome the tendency towards bureaucracy, towards a central, centralized authoritarian government, and allow the free and full development of various forces that had been involved in the revolution. So uh, again, a long-winded answer to a very good, succinct question, uh, but uh, it seems to me that the kinds of things that I'm talking about are all part of Lenin's testament, not just that one letter uh, criticizing Stalin. That, that was part of it. That was an important part of it. Yeah. So to put some final thoughts together at the end of this. Um, so I'd like to first ask how to apply Lenin to the work that needs to be done today. So you seem to consider yourself to be something of a Leninist, uh, and you identify as one and write a lot about him, but also regularly argue that truly being a Leninist does not mean following his words and works to the letter, but instead being animated by the underlying spirit. So what does it mean for you to be animated by Lenin's spirit in such a way that you are able to flexibly navigate new situations undogmatically while also not lapsing into these opportunistic shortcuts that we talked about earlier? Right. Um, if we had a few hours, I might be able to answer that adequately. <laughs> but let me uh, share some thoughts uh, in a more succinct way now. Um, one thing about Lenin is that he felt it made sense to use the ideas and perspectives of Karl Marx and Marxism. That was part of his core belief. But he insisted that Marxism could not be just a bunch of recipes that you memorize and then uh, superimpose on a very complex reality. He said a number of times, uh, quoting Goethe, uh, uh, theory, my friend, is gray, but evergreen is the tree of life. Reality is 
always so much more than the theoretical perspectives, and you have to be aware of that. He said that Marxism had to be a guide to action, not a dogma, but a guide to action. Uh, so that kind of Marxism. Now that also, I I would say, has to be our attitude towards what Lenin said. We can't simply memorize certain formulas and try to superimpose them on complex realities. It's a guide to action. That's one piece. Um, another piece is that um, he believed in the necessity of, and he, this was not just him, uh, but it was a core belief, but uh, he shared it with many other socialists, that socialism and the socialist goals has to be integrated with the working class. Socialism without the working class can't happen. The working class without socialism will always be oppressed. Bringing them together, the working class can become a force that brings about socialism. Well, that's part of Lenin's core belief, and uh, that, I, I think, still uh, stands. It makes sense. Another central aspect of Lenin's belief is uh, it's always fine to have conversations like the one we're having. It's it's fine. It's good. But uh, it has to be a guide to action. And the action piece is essential. You can't just talk about revolution. You have to apply it. You have to apply it. You have to struggle for it. You have to be involved in, uh, and then how do you how do you struggle for it? You and I can go on a street corner and say, we need a revolution, and people won't understand what we're talking about. So some of us who believe that we need a revolution have to get together and have to become involved, not just in talking at people, but talking with people, learning from people, and also become involved in struggles, actual struggles of people to protect their lives and their livelihood and to advance their interests and in struggles that can be won, in reform struggles. But those reform struggles have to be connected with an understanding, a strategic or, uh, understanding, a strategic orientation, education, and so forth, creating a consciousness among more and more laboring people and others uh, about the need for a society of the free and the equal and that that has to be brought about by a revolution, and we can learn from the experiences, our own past historical experiences and the historical experiences of others in developing an understanding of how to make that revolution. So these are some of the core ideas of Lenin, some of which he shared with others, but he was more consistent than many uh, in uh, these ideas. And uh, we can learn a lot from from that, and it will be it can be helpful for us uh, in bringing about the changes that are needed. And it's hard for me to see how the changes that are needed can be brought about unless we're using Lenin as this kind and, and his ideas and the experience of Lenin and his comrades as a resource uh, as we're dealing with our own. Um, uh, problems. Let me add one uh, more thought that's related to what I just said. Lenin, in building the Communist International and helping to build the Communist International and build communist parties around the world, insisted on the one hand that it was important for comrades to understand the Russian experience and learn from it, but that their experiences, their revolutions, their, uh, were going to be different 
He explained to Italian comrades, you know, what we did, you're going to have to do in a different way and in a different order for it to work in your country, in your culture. You know, what's that going to look like? What's that going to look like? I don't know. And you don't know. You have to commit yourself and then see. Commit yourself drawing on the resources that we have, the understanding that we have, and then see. So it seems to me that makes sense. That makes sense for us. And uh, so that's one of the reasons that uh, I wrote the book and was I'm hoping that the book can uh, be one of the resources that activists are using as we're facing our own catastrophes and trying to forge something better. Yeah, picking up something you were just alluding to. So you've mentioned uh, climate change a couple times in this conversation, and you say in the book you've been involved in some climate-oriented activism in the last few years. Um, So that's an issue that was not as central to Lenin's times, but is absolutely essential to ours. Do you have any thoughts on lessons Lenin might have to teach us for understanding and organizing around climate change? What do you think a Leninist approach to that movement would look like? Um, One thing is, I think... um, it has to be collective so that you and I and others who have these uh, sensibilities and, and this understanding need to work together to think through what would an approach be that makes sense in our own contexts. Um, I think what another thing that makes sense is we have to bring together just as it, it's essential to bring together socialist consciousness with the working class majority more and more and more as much as we can, we've got to bring an eco-socialist understanding together with a working class majority. And that involves not simply talking at people, but sharing information, but not just sharing information, finding ways to engage in struggles in the here and now in ways that give people can give people a deeper understanding, cause them to think more and be more open to socialist or eco-socialist understanding uh, uh, and getting a sense of their own power and then building on that to build the kind of movement that's necessary. Um, I think something like the Green New Deal uh, the Green New Deal is uh, the Green New Deal. It's a few words, uh, but and it has different ways of understanding it. So some uh, Democrats, liberal Democrats, I think have a phony understanding of it, you know, and it, it, they want to compromise with nature, but nature doesn't compromise. Uh, I think that uh, in point of fact, the fossil fuel industry and uh, capitalist corporations and capitalism as as such can't solve the problem. And uh, we're being given all kinds of phony stuff from climate deniers like Trump to climate compromisers like Biden. uh, And nature doesn't compromise. It's going to continue to unfold. So just as World War I, the unfolding of World War I, horrified and destroyed and radicalized many, many people, the climate crisis is going to do that. 
what we have to do is be involved in posing an alternative and building an alternative, including struggles in the here and now. And at a certain point, we might be a pole of attraction to carrying out a genuine Green New Deal, which means a restructuring of the economy, not on the basis of profit, but on the basis of human need and and, uh, democracy and accountability, um, socialism. And I think that there's a potential, if we do our job right, that we can win. We can bring about the revolution that we need. Uh, And we should be engaging in the climate struggle in part with that kind of Leninist sensibility, I think, in order to uh, advance it as far as it can go, hopefully in time. Yeah. So as a final question, having just written this survey of Lenin's life and thought, while also being kind of near the tail end of your own very long and very prolific career, I'm wondering if you have any closing thoughts on the sort of political commitments that animate people like you and Lenin. What does it mean to develop these sorts of political commitments in a way that they manage to last a lifetime past the usual age where a lot of young people lose their ambition, their hope, or their fire, and instead decide to settle for something a little more tame and modest politically. Um, In other words, how does one not just cultivate that revolutionary fervor and fire, but the revolutionary patience and perseverance that can last through periods of quiet, retreat, and defeat so that it can pass the torch on? Yeah. Um, I laughed because, uh, you know, well, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm not going to be around too much longer, uh, which is one reason why I wanted to write the book and, uh, uh, you know, uh, share other things and I'm not done yet. I'm not uh, ready to die yet, but, uh, but what is needed is going to have to be brought about by people of your generation and younger generations. Um, and so one thing is, uh, it's important to have that, uh, long view of history, that long-term perspective, the people who inspired me and taught me, they're all dead. Uh, and the people who inspired and taught them are dead and so forth. But, uh, this, uh, body of thought and these commitments are alive and these people are alive in me and in you. And that's one thing that uh, I think. Another thing that I think is um, things look very bad. They look really, really bad. I don't think we're going to make it uh, in ways that I hoped we would make it once upon a time. but if there's any hope for the future at all, it will be through people like ourselves connecting with other people like ourselves and more people like ourselves to bring about the change, the kinds of changes that are needed. And sometimes we'll get it wrong, uh, but we have to commit ourselves and then we'll see. We have to do our very best. There's no hope for the future unless we're doing that each in our own way, but some ways are going to make more sense ultimately than others. So my hope is that uh, we can pull that off, enough of that off, so that there will be 
a a future that worthy of human beings. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg, uh, towards the end of her life, talked about socialism or barbarism. Uh, and uh, I think that's more true than ever. And barbarism uh, and maybe extinction uh, is what we're facing uh, if we fail to do what we need to do. Uh, so there are some times when I've wanted to give up and I've given up, but I can't give up. I keep coming back to this. Uh, we've got to do our very best um, to uh, create a society of the free and the equal. Uh, it's possible to do that abstractly, you know, uh, but it, there's no chance of doing it actually unless we together work on it. So those are the kinds of things that uh, have kept me going. Uh, and Lenin has been an important part of that. Uh, and uh, th those are my concluding thoughts, I guess. Yeah, good note to end on. So as a final question, I always like to ask, is there anything you're working on now? Any new directions you're going in? Uh, what can we maybe hope to see from you in the next year or two? Well, uh, several things. One is uh, I'm part of the editorial board of uh, uh, the Verso edition of the Collected Works of Rosa Luxemburg. And who was also a magnificent revolutionary and, and human being. Um, and there's a projected 15 to 20 volumes. Uh, we're about to produce volume five. And I was a co-editor of volume two, and I'm a co-editor of volume five. And in volume five, uh, she talks about the mass strike, mass struggles, uh, uh, her struggles against the uh, reformists of uh, the Social Democratic Party in favor instead of a revolutionary orientation. She writes critically but supportively about the Russian Revolution. It's a very important volume. And uh, Helen Scott and I did a, a substantial introduction uh, to it. And I'm working on the index now. So that should be coming out in the spring. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, other work, uh, you know, we'll see uh, what other written work there would be, but uh, I'm part of a group called the Pittsburgh Green New Deal, and there are certain campaigns we're working on to try to um, actualize the kind of stuff I was talking about earlier, you know, on a local level. But also, uh, this has got to be global. So one of the groups that I am fascinated by is a group in Ireland called People Before Bombs. Uh, and they have been involved in various economic struggles of the Irish working class, social struggles. They helped to win the uh, great abortion rights victory that was won in Ireland uh, earlier, uh, I think earlier this year or late last year. Um, they, in addition to being involved in social struggles, they carry out socialist education in a way that resonates with significant chunks of the Irish working class, and therefore they've developed a base and have elected several people to parliament and other uh, local political offices. It's a wonderful organization. It's an amazing organization. And so my hope is 
to learn more. I'd like to go back there and talk to comrades even more and feed some of those kinds of ideas into the United States. Uh, talk about revolutionary internationalism. That's that's an aspect of it. Uh, the abortion struggle is, or not the the uh, well, the abortion struggle is part of that too. Uh, but the uh, ecological struggle. Uh, if we can't if we can't stop climate change and global warming globally it's not going to work just in one country or in one city it's got to be global so i'm i'm working with comrades around the world in a uh, uh global eco-socialist network also so those are some of the kinds of things that uh, i'll continue to be involved in wonderful so uh paula blanc thank you so much for coming back on Thank you very much. I've enjoyed uh, uh, being here with you, and uh, I'll look forward to uh, to uh, our struggle together, all of us. Thanks.